Hey guys, welcome to the CP Junkie podcast, where we bring you interviews with dentists sharing their CPD stories and journeys from around Australia. What better way to learn than to follow those who've already done it before? CPD Junkie is Australia's most comprehensive CPD, so head over to cpdjunkie.com.au and become a member for free to access the full features of the site. just dropping in to let you all know to keep your eyes out for your email inboxes as we are giving $50 vouchers for any CPD Junkie ticketed courses. Promo is planned for two weeks starting on the 16th of June until the 30th of June. Let's check it out. I'm your host Lawrence Doan and today we're joined by Dr. Andrew Chio. He completed his dental degree in at Melbourne in 95 where he graduated at the top of his year and was awarded with several awards for clinical achievement. He has previously worked the public system, the Royal Flying Doctors, and in the Nepalese hospital, giving him a wide perspective on demands and challenges of general dentistry. Dr. Chio maintains an active role in undergrad teaching in Melbourne and La Trobe University, and his involvement in various continuing education programs. He has in the past worked alongside international dentists such as Dr. Jason Smithson, Pascal Manier, and Gipil Gurul. He has published articles in restorative dentistry and in various dental publications, as well as peer-reviewed journals. Dr. Andrew Chio, welcome to the show. It's an absolute privilege, Lawrence, and I'm really looking forward to the next hour. And let's see what we can get up to. <laughs> yeah, so before we dive into your CPD journey into reconstructive and cosmetic dentistry, can you share a little bit about your past as a resident oral surgeon in the Nepalese hospital? Well... That started all mainly from a very selfish one to travel. <laughs> I graduated in 95. And at that time, the traditional thing that all of us did once we graduated was perhaps to work for a year or two to get enough money and to travel to. And usually the normal destination is to the United Kingdom. Well, I, the United Kingdom didn't really have um, the appeal to me for whatever reason it may be. And also I didn't, I wanted to work um, as a dentist wherever I could to support my travels. And when the opportunity came to relieve uh, a dentist in a rural hospital in Nepal, I said, damn, this is a great opportunity to travel. Not thinking even once about the profession itself. I said, damn, Nepal is good. And it's close to Tibet. I can go to Tibet. I can go to Afghanistan at that time. And so my planning to go to Nepal was all based on travel, <laughs> nothing to do with dentistry. And um, that was the reason why I said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll stand in for the dentist who's back, um, who was stationed at that hospital, who went home for almost a year. And it was really one of the best experience in terms of learning and also one of the most heartbreaking experiences that I've ever seen till today. So it gave me a wide variety of experience um, while I was working there and allowed me to do things um, and kind of shape my way of thinking when it comes to caring for people and for taking care of people. And so that opportunity I wouldn't give away for anything but also yeah yeah well i mean 
I've heard you mention in the past, it was one of your experiences where it was the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Absolutely. I mean, I was well off my lead. I was only two years out. And here I thought, here's a two dentist, a new graduate two years out, off to save the world. And I really <laughs> believe that. I said, I'm going to make a difference here. And when, but when I got to the hospital, they said, I'm um, said, well, where, okay, where's the amalgam? They said, uh, uh, what? <laughs> I was literally thrown into an oral, oral surgeon's position. And um, I said, where's the composite? They said, uh, over there. And I have boxes and boxes of donated composites. And I look at it, expired eight years ago, <laughs> expired nine years ago. I said, where did you get this? They said, eight or nine years ago. <laughs> so... <laughs> Suffice to say that restorative dentistry um, in the setting I was in wasn't the biggest priority. Um, it was mainly a lot of surgical work due to um, chronic dental infections. And the second biggest source of patients were actually the local people falling off the bus or when the bus goes over the ravine and they would have this emergency calls and you know, um, and I was part of the surgical team to fix fractured jaws. And mm. to be honest, Lawrence, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and my first jaw that I fixated, we were using wires. It wasn't as sophisticated as putting in bone plates. Yes. And I still remember my third day um, stationed in the hospital. I was told that we have a broken jaw that we need you to fix. We, we need someone to fix from the dental department. I said, where's the oral surgeon? And everyone said, you're it. <laughs> uh, it, it was a difficult, uh, very humbling process um, because I had the book open in front of me and someone on the other line from the capital, which was about 300 kilometers away, instructing me on what to do. And I did manage to finish it. Yes. Uh, I forgot to do one of the very, there's this wire that you use to fixate the jaw and it had to be pre-stretched so that it doesn't stretch it in the patient's mouth. Um, no one told me that and the book didn't say it. So yes. I didn't stretch the wires and the patient came back three months later with his jaw deformed. I nearly went home that day. Um, but the patient said, you are amazing. I said, what do you mean I'm amazing? He said, my jaw used to move and now it doesn't anymore. It doesn't matter. It's halfway <laughs> the wrong way. It doesn't pass up and down. Once, you know, you got one side of your chin lower than the other, <laughs> but it doesn't move. And he thought it was great. <laughs> so <laughs> those were my experiences. And it was, yeah. And it was also at a hospital that the only time dentistry caused me to pass out. <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was, yeah, it was uh, Ludwig Angina. And yeah. a, a general surgeon was showing me how they managed it. They didn't. We didn't have the expertise at that time to do minute drains and putting in surgical drains in. So he made me feel the artery down here. He said, everything anterior to that is safe. So he made a big cut under the jaw, made me put my hands underneath. And when I was pulling it out, all out, it was like cheese-like material on my hands. Yeah. And suddenly the curtains went down. <laughs> and I was known for a few months as, yeah, the surgeon who fainted. <laughs> You so, forgot uh, your cape back at home, hey? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, did you did you did you end up traveling like you were planning to all the neighboring countries? I, have, I managed to see a lot of Nepal that never saw a tourist because a part of the hospitals program, they had a lot of village programs um, that uh, um, where they went out to villages miles and miles away 
in order to do checks and basic care. I wouldn't even call them medical practitioners. They were basically people who said, I'll do a five week or do a um, 10 week program. And they are actually going back to the villages to provide basic medical and dental um, care to the villages that were um, living in very, very remote areas. And yeah, with that, we went out to all those areas and I saw parts of the country that I think that were restricted at that time. Yeah. And it was it was amazing experience um, to be able to have the opportunity to do that. And in my other travels, I know that I rode a motorcycle all the way through Pakistan, a big part of Pakistan, and with the intent of going to Afghanistan. And mm-hmm. when I got back, I was later found out that I was lucky I wasn't kidnapped or killed <laughs> in those areas. And look, it was a beautiful country and everyone knew I was lost. So, you know, I think that the common, the common misconception that portrays, um, you know, people from certain areas of that country or even Afghanistan is, it's only one section of it. The vast majority of people are, you know, I found anyway, were very friendly and were very accepting that, you know, you are who you are. So it was a yeah. massive, amazing experience that, you know, I'll never forget. Yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like you would have had, you know, if you went to the UK, you probably would not have anything close to what you have experienced in this very short space of time. Yeah, it was different. But again, I guess that um, I, when we look back with all the friends that I've grown up with in the dental profession, and when we look back, they had their highs as well going to the UK. And I'm sure that basically that there are plus and minuses and all. It's just some, a decision that I decided that I chose for myself. Mm. And um, yeah, and, it, and never regretted it. Yeah. So eventually that chapter closed and you returned back to Australia. Yes, I got married. <laughs> I got married and had to go home. <laughs> uh, I met my wife in Nepal, so she had enough as well. So... <laughs> Okay. Was she, was she also a dentist? No, she's not. Thank goodness. <laughs> That's what I keep saying. Thank goodness. Um, no, she's a teacher and she worked um, in the hospital um, where I was stationed at. Yeah. So yeah. when we met, we got married and we decided to relocate back to Melbourne and to start a new, I guess, the new next phase of our lives. Yeah. <laughs> and she knew about you being the, the dentist that fainted on um yeah, Lawrence <laughs> was that the neighborhood like reputation yeah it was a bit of a everyone laughed at me <laughs> obviously <laughs> hey every time i walk in every say hey are you gonna faint but it was all in good humor uh, yes yeah so, so you came back to australia and uh, so tell us about your cpd journey into reconstructive and cosmetic dentistry you see i never thought that i would be interested in that area of dentistry at all. Because when I came back, I always thought, look, I saw all the, I guess, all the inadequacies I had in Nepal and a lot of things I wanted to do surgically, but I couldn't do, um, mainly because I was an oral surgeon. You know, if someone had a tumor, I say, someone's got a tumor. There's nothing I can do palliatively or curative for, in a curative manner um, mainly because I didn't have the training. And I really, really considered um, applying for a, 
any programs that would eventually lead me to an oral maxillofacial qualification. But something happened in, in the meantime. And as you said, what changed the path was there were, I joined, uh, we didn't have social media then. You need to know that, you know, social media was something quite foreign. We still had dial up internet. <laughs> and, <laughs> exactly. I remember that. Yeah, and I joined a message group called the ACE group, A-C-E. And it was very, there was no pictures. Um, you know, everything was narrative and written. Yeah. And I was exposed to a whole area of dentistry I've never heard of. Um, there were big names of that time and even big names today, um, people like David Hornbrook, um, a lot of the American cosmetic gurus who were all on it and they were all contributing to the different areas of reconstruction that I never even considered. I mean, for me at that time, it was amalgam for large restorations, composite for smaller restorations and everything else gets either a PFM or a gold crown, you know? And these guys were talking about adhesion. These guys were talking about indirect partial coverage restorations, even then that reinforce the teeth. And I really, it perked my interest um, but I didn't know what they were talking about. You know, um, there was this material called Concept from Ivoplar. And I looked all over Australia. Um, I called my lab and said, Do you, Concept? He said, what the hell is Concept? You know? That's an idea. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it was actually an indirect composite material. So that perked my interest. And the more dentistry I did, I began to find more satisfaction in restoring a tooth than from taking it out. And I guess that's where I started my journey into wanting to know more because I felt that perhaps um, what I thought was really good based on what I learned at university was perhaps not good enough when you hear everyone else speaking about treatment modalities that you've never heard about. And so... I started with composites, <laughs> like everyone else, I started with composites because my composites at that time, my interior composites really, really looked as if the seagull has just flown past and just did a bit <laughs> pop into it. <laughs> I had no idea of translucencies, I had no ideas of opacities until I somehow attended a lecture by a Brazilian dentist called Newton Falk. And Newton Fowle, who's still one of the amazing composite artists today, opened my eyes to what was available. And I started learning everything that I could um, on anterior composites. You know, any program that I could think that C came up, I would join. And at that time, it wasn't easy to find programs because most continuing education programs were based in universities. And the other programs, you just didn't get the exposure because you, um, you didn't get the mail. <laughs> it was still the traditional mail. And yeah, so it was harder to find programs, I thought. Um, and I kept on asking on the, on the message group, where should I go to learn about all these things? And at that time, there was a very well-known lecturer at that time who later became, um, I would say, the impetus that changed the way I practice dentistry. He was a lecturer from America called Dr. Ronald Jackson. 
and he was one of the pioneers who did all the partial coverage restorations. And so happens he was teaching in um, an institute in America at that time called mm -hmm. LVI or Las Vegas Institute. Mm -hmm. So I packed my bags and hopped on to America, met Ron Jackson, and for the first time understood what adhesion was. Because um, I was always um, brought up in a, the sound, I'm not sound, the teaching that glass onomer is the be all and end all coming from Melbourne. And so he opened my eyes and later on, I found a lot of other programs that the Institute provided. And I'm going to say that I've learned all my adhesion basic principles and all my prep principles from the Institute. I did go on to do the occlusal programs, their neuromuscular based programs, but after completing everything, buying the computers, I kind of realized that it was not a philosophy that fitted the way I practiced. So, mm -hmm. um, but again, I'm going to credit LVI. I know LVI sometimes has a bad rap, but I'm going to credit Ron Jackson as the person who ignited as the passion to in the field of aesthetic and reconstructive dentistry. Yeah. So from then on, I kept on doing everything that I could. Um, yes. And it was also at that time where Dental Town came about. Yeah, so yeah. Um, it was pretty much that era where images were suddenly appearing on the computers. And what I thought was, you know, that I was a bee's knees. When I look at that, pictures that come up there say, damn, <laughs> I've got a long way to go. So, yeah, um, that's that's what how actually the impetus that changed my, I guess, the pathway of my career mm -hmm. from removing teeth to actually saving teeth and reconstructing teeth. And I kept on doing as many programs and I was very lucky to meet and have access to a lot of good mentors even though it was just online so yeah. yeah well talk to me about that like because you know you're coming out and then you know when you're signing up for something like that it's a lot of money you know like, not to not to factor in just the cost of the program but like flying the time like you know as a, a graduate that's kind of coming out at this yeah. time um talk to me about how you're processing how you kind of balancing you know some people might think i'll just stay here in australia and i'll just uh, learn the courses here and if the information comes here I'll just do it that way but you mm. felt compelled to go out and really um, learn more about these um, courses the reason for that was because of my I kind of realized the way that the best way that I could learn was actually not just listening to lectures and not just in some ways working on models helped a lot um, but at the end of the day, I kind of realized that the best way I could learn was actually by doing it. And by doing it, if I had someone looking over my shoulder, that would have been absolutely a big plus. And now, in fact, my first veneer course was actually done at the ADA in New South Wales, when they actually brought LVI over. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of people who did um, the program that are now very well-known speakers themselves. And... It was really good. I mean, you, you brought a case, you prepped it, and someone over your shoulder would tell you, yeah, we'll do it this way, and this is the reason why. So you get all those theory in your head reinforced by actually practical um, and clinical um, experience itself. So those learnings really stuck. 
And the reason why I went to America was that I could not find anything similar in Australia at that time. Um, mm -hmm. And I kind of knew where I wanted to go at that stage, where my career, as best as I could at that period of time, where I wanted to take my career to. Um, and that was the reason why I did it. Nowadays, I'm going to say that there are a lot of good programs throughout Australia. A lot of really, really good speakers um, that basically provide almost a full, well-grounded curriculum for the younger general dentists. Okay. And I'm going to look, I'm lucky enough to teach in university. And what I tell all my graduating students is this um, first two, three years of your career, just do everything, you know, whether you feel you want to specialize or not do everything because your opinion and your feelings will change um, just like minded, you know? Um, so I said, do everything as, learn as much as you can. And once you know, if you do know where you want to go, then basically perhaps look more into that. Um, I know that a few of my um, students, three to four years out now, are actually doing the spear continuum in the United States. What started off as an online program mm -hmm. um, has brought them to attend the program in the US itself. Um, and others have attended COIS. And, but as you said, it is a massive, massive investment. Yeah. But not everyone will see it my way. The way I look at things is that my colleagues at the time I was doing LVI were saying that, you know, you're not spending so much money when you can do it in Melbourne Uni or Sydney University. Um, they have the they have the content, don't get me wrong, but it was just did not suit what I wanted, when I wanted it, because I wanted it all now. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I was a millennial long before millennials became millennials. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, yeah, I, oh, so in that way, I, a lot of my colleagues were saying, no, you're spending so much money on yourself. What's um, all, all these programs? What's wrong with you, literally? And the way I look at it is that instead of investing in shares or investing in a car or anything like that, which most of my colleagues were, I said, I'll just drive, ride my bicycle or whatever it is, put the money aside to, because I really believed that it would repay for itself. And it did. Yeah. So. Well, talk to me, how do you get the most out of it? Because, you know, you're, you're probably one of the few um, associates at the practice at this time, I'm assuming. Yep. Um, how do you have the you know, um, support? Because you mentioned you had mentors. Is that how yep. you kind of balance that with the case? I do. Um, look, when I did the LVI program, and as I said, at that time, we had access to all um, the mentors, all the teachers, and they... It was by email because we didn't have um, messenger or social media that made communication as easy. But again, I was very lucky to be able to access them and um, to bring my practice to the next level. Okay, But having said that, Lawrence, I could not have done it on my own. Remember I said that I did the first LVI program with a bunch of dentists or a group of dentists that today are amazing dentists themselves. And it was through that group that, and that is why I believe that you can't just do continuing education or programs just 
through YouTube. I'm, I'm not saying YouTube doesn't have good content. It has some bloody good content. Mm -hmm. But again, you or just attending webinars or going to, you know, or doing it by yourself. I think that basically professional development um, is encompasses a whole range of factors where mm -hmm. CE is a big part, but professional and camaraderie is just as important. We, I've learned so much just by talking from the like-minded people attending the similar programs and you learn just as much um, speaking to them as you do from the presenter at the podium. So that is why I hope that basically meetings will restart again. And it's something I really believe should not end because, um, yeah. So that's my answer. A lot of colleagues, yeah. who, all of us doing the same thing, build each other up. I also read, Lawrence, that you're doing the King's College program. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I did start that. Yes, that's correct. And again, as I said, through that program, you would have met people from us, you know, that were in the same shoes that you kind of go through the program and go through the experiences together. And a lot of times you remain friends um, till then. I mean, one of the, yeah, exactly. So yeah, was, yeah, I, I, it was a great um, program to start with. I've actually deferred it for the time being. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it was a great program. I met people from different um, walks of life, um, people who were actually in a similar kind of situation um, mm. that we're trying to learn. And um, it was definitely a, a, a program that I wanted, I looked into and felt was structured and that was why I went down that route. Yeah, yeah. I think that if I was at that sh stage in my career, instead of going to LBI, you know, King's College are all really, really good options that I don't think was available at my time. Yeah. Mm. So, and again, as I said, what I've got from LVI is not only the didactic teaching, the skills, but I've got basically colleagues that I've met then that have been my mentors and helped me out. And Terry Wong was one of it. Dr. Terry Wong, who's a well-known wow. speaker in Australia as well. He went to LVI as well. So um, he's just one of many. And so uh, I think that basically that is why joining groups um, not only having to, I'm not only referring to going through a specific school, but a lot of um, the organizations like the Cross Society, which I'm a part of, and in the past Seattle Study Club, all help put in pieces of the puzzle in mm -hmm. your professional development. And that is just as important as attending CE itself, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's comment on that. So as someone who has been part of the committee and member of these dental groups, you know, the Australian Pro Society, the MDS, CPD um, committee, the Seattle Club and Dental yeah. Ed, you know, can you share your insight into what, um, you know, potential future members should expect if they want to sign up for such groups? Yeah, look, the dinners are excellent in <laughs> the meetings. <laughs> the food is really good. And the Pro Society offers free wine. So... <laughs> <laughs> But no, in reality, again, it's a, it's a group that basically having the same vision, the same interests, um, coming together as to get um, and together, not only to attend a very a well structured and well organized didactic lecture from a um, from specialists or from presenters from all over the country and sometimes even overseas. Mm. Um, but again, it is this sense of coming together and sharing that 
contributes a lot to the development of um, of an individual dentist in a professional manner. Okay, there are a lot of basically programs like so where they offer mentorship as well. So whenever there is any issues, you can, um, for example, AOS is an amazing source of information regarding implant dentistry. And um, all these groups do a lot in terms of making information that are sound, that are in many ways peer reviewed. Um, and it guides, especially the younger dentists and dentists of all stages, actually, in a correct way, because there are a lot of things that are out there that perhaps haven't truly proven themselves. All right. Yeah. So um, a lot of issues like that. I know I'm not going to name names, but there is a group that really, really believes that biological width does not exist. It doesn't yeah. matter with your margins of your crowns, for example. You know, you can dig all the way in. Um, yeah. certain, use certain materials, it'll heal. That's not a problem. And it is, they could be proven right. I don't know, <laughs> but I don't think they will. But again, it is such, people call it old-fashioned um, mm -hmm. organizations that can provide a sound footing to what is currently accepted and what perhaps you should do with caution. Yeah. Well, I want to dive into that. You know, how did your implant journey kind of begin? It never did, Lawrence. <laughs> it never did. Yeah. Uh, I don't do any surgery now. Um, I don't, yeah. um, I've been blessed to be working with whom I truly believe is the best implant. I'm going to upset a lot of people. Yes. Um, best implant periodontist in Melbourne. Um, yeah. Adam Rosenberg. And I was very lucky to have met him early stage in my career. And he was in the early stage of his career as well. And we started off as professionally, as colleagues. But today we are both colleagues and friends. And he does all my surgeries. So, mm -hmm. and in, um, I've chosen not to do any surgeries. Such a big turnaround from someone who wants to be an oral surgeon. Yeah. I joke around nowadays that I run a practice limited to bloodless procedures. <laughs> anything, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anything that does not cause blood, um, I'll do it. Anything that does cause bleeding or any of that sort, extractions, I don't even do extractions anymore because yeah. I found that I don't quite enjoy it. So I have my colleague um, who works with me, Dr. Trinian, yes. who is really, really good in that. And together we complement each other in our practice. So, mm -hmm. um, so as you said, um, another clock in professional development and on top yeah. of CE and um, having a group of colleagues that you can rely on. The other one is having specialists that you can actually, you know, get feedback from. I can tell you, I've had my backside served back to me on a plate many times from Adam. <laughs> when I say, oh, just do this. And he said, what's wrong with you, Andrew? <laughs> Yes, yes. You learn things about implants. You learn things about what can and can't be done as well. And again, right now, I like to think that basically restoratively, we talk about things and I can give you my input from a restorative perspective. Mm -hmm. as, as implant procedures um, restoratively and surgically continually evolve. Um, yes. So having people that you work with specialists like like that that um that have you know that 
give you constructive feedback is, um, has helped me a lot in my professional development as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I just want to clarify. Yeah. So would you say that it's um, that you went and learned about it a little bit and then you decided that's, that's not what you wanted to get into or was it more that you, you learned it and you implemented it, but you realized that you weren't very good at it and that's why you decided not to kind of go down that path? Yeah, a bit of both. And at that stage, I kind of realized I did not want to do surgery. But you can't separate the restorative component from the surgical component. So Adam and I, um, we attended, I attended a lot of surgical programs, although there was no intention for me ever to do any implants myself. So I knew where his perspective was. And in the same way, to his credit, Adam has actually done a lot of restorative programs as well um, to know exactly what the restorative dentist wants. Because it is, after all, implants nowadays is predominantly restoratively driven. So um, both of us, a lot of my CE nowadays is to do with treatments or procedures that I'm unlikely to undertake myself, but I feel I need a very good understanding in order to deliver other aspects relating to it. So um, yeah, for me, surgery kind of lost its interest. And yeah. um, that's the reason why I work very, very well with Adam. Um, he's there by my side if I need him and vice versa. When he needs um, something restoratively done, and I've got no problems just driving down to his practice and helping him out. And he does vice versa. So Fair enough. So talk about your digital dentistry side of things. How did you kind of dive into that? Oh, Lawrence. <laughs> Lawrence, Lawrence, Lawrence. <laughs> I'm going to say that I am not, I'm not, not reluctant to change, but I was, I got, I moved into digital dentistry because a very good friend of mine, Dr. Anthony Mack. He has been doing digital for a long, long time. And for me, I found it a little bit more difficult to completely embrace the digital movement, I guess, mainly because my polyvinyls were nailing in nearly all the time. And, uh, and the, all train of thought that affects a lot of people, why change something that is working? And that is a very common thought in a lot of dentists. And I couldn't believe I was thinking about it um, because I always tell, you need always need to innovate. I tell all the dentists that speak to me, the, my younger um, students say, you know, things will never remain the same and you have to move with the times. Yeah. Um, and, and digital dentistry was exactly just that. I was reluctant to move forward, mainly because uh, my analog workflow had served me so well and with so little issues. Um, but I always knew that dig digital dentistry eventually was the way um, to go. It allows much better planning. And um, there's so much more than just scanning a prep, for example. There is so much that goes into digital dentistry from the planning perspective, from uh, implant placement perspective, that you really, I felt that I would really have been left behind if I didn't embrace the technology. So I did, kicking and screaming. And again, having a good friend who you call a mentor as well in Anthony um, helped a lot because um, I could just call him 
And if he doesn't answer, leave 20 messages <laughs> for him to know that he needs to call me. <laughs> I said, what the hell is going on with my scan? He says, oh, turn your overlight headlight off, maybe. <laughs> you know, things like that. So he, we have good banters and learning is so much more fun and easier when you can do it with a friend. That's what I mean. And, and it's so much better if the friend is also your mentor. And I'm going to say to say, I've been... In my life, Lawrence, I've been very lucky to, through the organizations, I would never have had all these opportunities if it was not for my involvement in such organizations. Like through Dental Ed, I've met Jason Smithson, as you said, and I, I met Pascal Manier and Mauro Fradiani, all the people that I literally leached myself onto them. <laughs> Every time they came to that, I would leech onto them, you know, keep on bugging them with questions and continue to learn so much until the point that they were comfortable asking me to teach with them. So I would never have all these opportunities if I didn't take the step out in order to join the groups and to see, you know, um, what opportunities were there for me to participate and to learn. And I've been, I feel that I've been very, very lucky in that way. And I still call um, Jason a friend. We still catch up. And, um, you know, through him, through Anthony and um, some, you know, the friends like that have always provided their two cents whenever you have that difficult case and say, what would you do here? And you'll say, oh, yeah, da, 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 da. I say, why didn't I think of that? So it's so much easier to practice with friends. Um, and it's much easier now with social, you know, with the online platforms that we have nowadays. Yeah. Well, I mean, to all of our listeners, you know, if you want to learn from Andrew here, make sure you just stick on like a leech. That's how you're going to get the most out of him. <laughs> uh, it's a good way to absorb that. I just, you know, um, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I like to think that what experience has given me, um, I, I would like to share with all my students and whether, and at the end of the day, I always encourage everyone to do what is best for you, okay? Um, I always tell them, if you really believe in your heart that amalgam is the best restoration in the world, do amalgams. I mean, um, I think you may be misguided, but if you really believe that, then do it. And it's the same with CE. I mean, there is really a misconception that as a general dentist, you have to be a super general dentist, be proficient in every single thing, producing results of Facebook quality every single case you do see. And that's just not the real world. That is really not just the real world. I think that basically what you should, what someone would do if some of, um, one of my students asked, what CE would you recommend that I do? I would always say that do everything in the first few years, mm -hmm. see what really interests you and be really, really good at it. And even if that means specialization, you're still working towards that direction. You can be based, you, as a general dentist, you don't have to do everything. And it took me a lot, many years to be comfortable with that idea. Okay, because in the back of my mind, I always thought I have to be really good at endo. I really have to do surgery and to be any, to be a GP of any worth, you know, um, to be a 
I need to do implants and do grafting as well. Yeah. Um, I think that I've been more at peace with myself in the past few years to say, no, I don't. Um, I think I'll do what I really, really do enjoy and worry less about what other people think. <laughs> and yeah. that's very, very important as well. Because that's interesting. Because like a lot of graduates at a certain point, you know, that four or five year mark, they start to contemplate practice ownership, being a specialist, being a super GP. Yeah. I mean, you've touched on these points where you've in the past thought about becoming a specialist or, you know, yeah. where you're a lot more comfortable now in the things that you do um, in terms of your general dentistry. Can you share your thoughts on, you know, maybe even practice um, ownership and all of that? Owning a practice, I can say, is bloody difficult. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say. I personally don't do well with practice ownership. Um, Mm. However, I do realize also, on the other hand, that if I didn't own my own practice, I will not be the practitioner I am today. I won't have that scanner that I bought. I won't have that microscope that hangs off my wall. I won't have the protocols, the systems that I have implemented because I can. It's my practice. It's so much harder for an associate to do that. Um, So practice ownership, I'm not a typical practice owner owner in many ways, Lawrence. Um, I know it's very important. I hear a lot about the need to scale your practice to work on your practice, not in your practice. But I'm one of those dentists that really prefers to work in the practice and on the practice. Okay? Mm-hmm. And um, not through any good business acumen, but more to just taking care of people. Yeah, I've been able to build my practice. And I still believe that to this day. I've built my practice to where it is today that we still don't advertise. Mm-hmm. And yet we've got about you know 20 um, 15 to 20 new patients um every every month and to the point where it's not a humbrag or anything please um, but again yeah. we are finding it hard to fit everyone at what i've deemed to be a reasonable time frame okay patients who have been with us forever if they call for toothache even though it's 10 in the evening the next available point is Stanley, I will stay back for them. So, wow. um, and I think that basically that's, if you ask about practice ownership, I think that again, it's the personality of the dentist. Mm-hmm. What are your reasons of owning a practice? Again, there's neither right or wrong. It's just uh, what you want to achieve from owning a practice. Um, there's two polarizing ends. Those who only want to be concentrating on the business side of dentistry and the other end is someone like me, where we are just really, really interested in um, the clinical side of dentistry. But I really believe the right area is somewhere in the middle. You need to have mm-hmm. both acumens. And so for someone contemplating practice ownership, um, I do encourage it. It is going to be tough. But then again, I really believe that owning your own practice, you make your own calls. And so as to speak, you live and die by your sword, you know, mm-hmm. the things that you make and you can't blame anyone else but yourself. And I've always been a strong proponent of taking responsibility. And if anything does not go right or anything like that, there's no one else to blame you to the practice owner. Mm, yeah. I've heard the microscope's been an issue for you in the past. Yeah. It's gathering dust. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> um, it is an amazing piece of equipment. Yes. Everything else, if you use it. Yeah. Um, I just find that basically through, I do use it for those one or two endo cases as it was, the bloody MB2. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but other times I do wear um, loops of five to six. I've got a couple. Mm-hmm. And I tell my students, do as I say, not as I do. Keep your back straight. But my back is bent most of the time trying to get direct vision and i find that that microscope microscope is not conducive to that request (laughs) everyone says i want to keep my back straight i say i want to bend my back and i can't do it with my microscope (laughs) so that but again as i said that's a luxury that i can accept because it was my decision Mm -hmm. and um yeah i'm the practice owner i bought it and it's sitting there because of my decision (laughs) <laughs> so um, that, those are the luxuries that you don't may not have as an associate mm-hmm. like um, yeah so I still think that I would I as much as I hate the business side of dentistry if I were to travel back in time I would do it all again yeah I hope my wife doesn't watch this because she'll kill me <laughs> all the weird things that I've said <laughs> No, that's fair enough. I mean, like, hey, you, you're mentoring, you know, um, students and all of that. So you tutor. So have you seen, like, students making similar mistakes over your time? Or do you see that there's been a change in the type of mistakes or attitudes over time, given the, the abundance of information they have access to now? The abundance of information is, a, I believe, a two-edged sword, okay? If you see an amazing case on Facebook, it creates two sorts of feelings. Um, number one is a feeling of, if you're not at that stage, it motivates you to try to achieve that. And that's what happened to me with a lot of the reconstructive um, cases that I was seeing. But at the same manner, it can be demoralizing as well because it can actually affect your thinking. Say, I can never get there. And because there is that feeling that you'll never get there. You never do try. So um, seeing all those beautiful cases on um, social media is really a two-edged sword, I believe. And different people will accept it differently. So I'm going to say do not form your career, I guess, (laughs) based on what you think is what you see on social media because that's really not the norm. It does occur, don't get me wrong. It Mm. does occur. Um, and it is achieved by a lot of people, but again, um, it is, it is unfortunately too edged sore. And in terms of your question of the mistakes you do see, um, look, if you don't make mistakes, you never learn. Um, that's what, um, I've always believed. It's hard to accept that you make mistakes. It hurts like hell. (laughs) Um, but again, I think that through for all the young dentists that basically trying a new procedure on the provision you've done enough reading, not just watching a video on YouTube or anything like that. If you know the theory behind it, what to do, then basically I would say that you've done enough training or programs, talk to enough people, then my suggestion is always push yourself. If you don't push yourself and make mistakes, you'll never get there. When I was doing endo, I can tell you, 
if you, there is a saying in Endo, what my um, endodontist said, tells me, if you haven't perforated, you haven't done enough Endo. And um, one perforation, I can tell you, will make you think twice about tackling this next case that comes mm -hmm. in again. And mistakes will happen. It's just part of nature of dentistry. Even right now, mistakes do happen for me as well. Um, but again, the whole thing is to learn and to make sure it never happens again. And that's how you get that. That's another clock again in your professional development is making mistakes um, and getting constructive feedback and actually dealing with it. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, so, but yeah. Well, let's talk about that, you know, because like, you know, as you mentioned, many graduates and even senior clinicians, experienced clinicians still experience struggles throughout their journey, you know. Uh, you mentioned learning to deal with it. I mean, what have been your some of your coping mechanisms behind that? Well, it's I'm giving advice that I can't take myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, I'm going to give an example. In the past year in, co in COVID, I have never held that many implants in my hands that were once in patient's mouth. And again, it is... No one's fault sometimes. Sometimes perhaps it is um, we push the boundaries. Um, Adam and I push the boundaries a bit. I can tell you the number of nights I've lost sleep on through cases. And it still happens today. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that basically it is a good thing and a bad thing at the same time. Again, here comes a two-edged sword in that it propels you not to want to make that mistake again, but it keeps you awake at night. And I think that keeping awake at night, and again, I find a lot of my students say the same thing. They say that something didn't go as well and they feel really bad about it. And a week later, they still feel bad about it. You know? But I say that that feeling comes from the fact that you actually do care. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not always a bad thing, but uh, coping mechanisms is a hard thing. Um, I wish I had a magic pill. I don't. You know, there are, um, there are things that I know everyone says, try to do other things, have a balanced life and all that. But again, as I said, I'm not going to say that because that's advice that I'm not taking myself. I spend too much time at work, spend too much time reading up on things that I feel I don't know. And um, yeah, but yeah, but I enjoy doing it. That's the scary thing. I enjoy doing it. Just don't enjoy the failures. <laughs> yes, of course. So um, share with us what you hope your ideal clinical or non-clinical day might look like in five years' time and what kind of CV do you want to do to get to that point? Um, I'm at a stage now where basically I want to do the things that I want to do and perhaps pass on more of my responsibilities of um, other treatments to my associate whom I hope one day will be part of the practice as well um, in a more than just an associate relationship. So in the next five years, I, one of the areas I'm going to say that I'm struggling a lot with now is to know what is the best way um, to, for implant placement and implant restoration. That area I find is changing so rapidly um, that at present, I'm, I don't mentor much on the implants because I'm trying to work things out myself still. 
Um, there are a lot of trains of thoughts. Uh, prime example is immediate. There is a lot of people saying that everything, unless there are contraindications, should be an immediate from anterior to posterior and mm -hmm. shows ample studies to support it. And on the other group, this says that be more, I guess, careful and um, perhaps immediate is not the best way to go. And I still find it very hard that the restoration, implant retained restoration based on a Thai base, there are still circles and very, and people that I respect a lot that says that there may be issues with Thai base coming around. Wow. Yeah, whether be it that cement margin, um, de-cementation de from the um, Thai base abutments, and a lot of other issues that I just, you know, didn't think about, you know, um, and material-wise as well, zirconia, titanium, which is the best for the um, tissues, bone level, tissue levels. Mm. Um, what I thought I knew through CE, now through CE as well, I know that I don't know. <laughs> so it's an ever-ending circle. And yes. the reason why that occurs is because technology changes. And that is why professional development, whether it be it doing CE courses, um, having peer discussions with colleagues that you know you can trust, and also looking at the literature as can be, are all aspects that basically professionally develops an individual. It's just not one source that provides the whole package, I guess. Just attending mm -hmm. courses itself, as helpful as it is, it's not the full package. Yeah. So in terms of implants, restoring implants, soft tissue, um, grafting are areas that I know that I'll be spending a lot of time with. In fact, I've hopefully I'll get in. I've signed up with Tony Rotondo's soft tissue course coming up in May. He's another clinician. Mm -hmm. with hands that I wish I had his thumb, just his thumb, don't need the other finger. <laughs> Enough skills in his thumb. <laughs> and that's the way I think it's done. That's what a lot of people think. But again, the challenge is to be comfortable with where you are at at the moment and to continue to strive to be better. Yeah, yeah, that's something to hear. I mean, I guess what you're talking about is as well, it's like, you know, when you buy a textbook, that's only updated to that certain point in time. You know, you need to buy the updated one to get the updated information. And even then that will get outdated at some point. Exactly. So continuing education and professional development, in my opinion, is an ever evolving arena. And again, it is, I feel it's important um, for you it's, as a dentist who treats patients. I, I really feel it's your responsibility. If you want to treat patients, at least have the continuing education background or the knowledge background to be able to know that what you're doing has some degree of scientific basis and some degree of um, clinical success. Right? Um, but not, that's not to say always be conservative. Um, I always tell um, a lot of my older students, I guess, um, that you need to be on the leading edge and somehow not be on the bleeding edge. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
yeah, we get, I get a lot of questions that I know that sometimes I can't answer. Like a couple of years ago, everyone was talking about the partial extraction therapy mm -hmm. um, where they would uh, leave a segment of the tooth in a buckle plate. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Um, no one knew at the time whether how well that would work, but now it's becoming more accepted. And um, yeah, so those are cases that um, I would say, you know, learn about it, but don't bank all your cases using that one technique, you know? Um, yeah. And again, it is always a right balance of doing CE, applying it in, in the right manner, I guess. Yeah. yeah, that's fair enough. So can we expect anything from Dental X? Dental X, I've been... We've been on hiatus for the moment because all of us were trying to deal with practices um, uh, in, COVID. in COVID period. And Anthony and I were very, very fortunate um, to have been able to hold a year-long hands-on program. Um, it's a program geared towards um, providing a sound foundation for all aspects of general dentistry. And it was never advertised because we were very lucky that it, it failed. And that took up a lot of time and dealing with the repercussions of cancellations because of COVID and making sure all the students got their value for the money they paid for had been such a big challenge. So, mm. and we also felt that at that stage um, that perhaps everyone was being a little bit webinar out. Mm -hmm. So having another presentation uh, perhaps wasn't the right thing we thought to do, but there, we have some ideas, nothing concrete, um, because I think that life practices now, are, oh, we're getting really busy again and trying to um, sort our home business um, out and also to make sure that we do continue to fulfill our obligations to the students who have trusted us um, for the program. Mm -hmm. So we still have two more continuums to finish up this year from last year's program and fingers crossed and we'll go ahead with our NHS now so that's been taking out a lot of our time but yes um Anthony's the brain behind um behind the program and he's the engine that runs the whole thing you know as I said I really enjoy um meeting up with him and contribute wherever I can um but again half of the reason why we do it is because it's so much fun yeah. I hear you're the team dentist for Essendon Football Club. <laughs> What's it like formulating and implementing the club's dental program since 20, 2009, if I'm correct? 2009. Uh, look, um, it's fun. And again, it's, it's the club that I support, um, the football club. And it was just through dumb luck that I got involved with the team. And someone asked me, oh, we need someone to take impressions for mouth guards. It's going all the way back to 2009. And when I walked in, I couldn't believe how many teeth were literally rotting out of their heads. So I said, look, um, mouth guard is only one part of it. You know, if you want total wellness, I think you should consider dental because someone's going to lose games because of a tooth infection. And he said, nah, nah, these guys are all fine. We've been fine for that many years. And through dumb luck that year, they lost three players at very critical games. They say, yeah, what were you saying that you wanted to do again? <laughs> So um, I got in and um, organized the whole dental program for the team, met a lot of players and had a lot of opportunities that 
I guess nowadays people say, oh, I can't believe you're doing it that I do take for granted. And yeah, um, I've met a lot of players who've still come to see me and um, I've seen them with their kids. So it's a, it's, it's a fun thing. Um, and we talk a lot also about the challenges that they have as, you know, young kids. You're getting younger, Lawrence, good grief. My son's yeah. older than the players nowadays. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a fun thing. And again, it is one aspect of dentistry um, that I do because it takes me away from the normal walls of my practice. I just don't, um, it's a good opportunity. Um, and I'm, I've got this sort of personality that doesn't allow me um, to do things that I'm not really good at. And that's why I don't play golf. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fair enough. My blood I pressure think... will go off the roof if I play golf. <laughs> <laughs> so I and... guess if Essendon actually finally wins, right? You can say, look, I was part of it. <laughs> uh, I've got one premiership player already who was ex-Essendon <laughs> so I'm claiming success in that <laughs> Andrew Chio, there's so many more questions I want to ask you I want to thank you for coming on the show today if you could let the people know how they can find you or what you've got going on in your life um, look I, I'm always open um, look, I'm an old fart. If you say Instagram, TikTok, I have no idea what you're talking about. You're not dancing? <laughs> go, speak, go speak to Anthony in those areas. I'm on Facebook, the old man social media platform. <laughs> <laughs> and you can definitely shoot me a message there. And that is one platform that I do follow because I get all my students from uni to log on there. And I do check it quite frequently. And that allows me to answer their questions almost in real time whenever I can. So definitely reach out to me on, um, on Facebook, not Facebook, yeah, Facebook on the messenger. <laughs> <laughs> See, there's so many platforms I can't even remember. <laughs> um, you can shoot me an email if you want to. It's andrewchio1 at gmail.com. Mm. So I'm happy to answer any questions again. Um, don't have all the answers. I can guarantee you that. But um, the guys, is throwing it away. Just leech, leech, leech. That's the main thing. <laughs> the best answer I can give you is what I believe I know, what has worked for me, and my opinions on certain things which may be right or wrong. Um, but again, very happy to um, speak or contact, to get in contact with anyone who feels that there may be something they want to ask me. Very happy to. If you like this episode, drop a comment below on your favorite part or leave a review. Don't forget to share it with your friends and we'll see you in the next episode of CP Junkie Podcast.